James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is the word of the Lord. The children are dismissed for Children's Church upstairs. We're walking through the book of James uh, this summer, and we're in chapter 2 this morning, as has just been read. But remember last week where we left off, and really the last couple of weeks. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, in fact, we spent a couple of weeks in that text where it says, be quick to hear. Quick to hear. We need to hear something. We need to hear the word. And the Scripture tells us in James, if we, if we hear it, then the natural outgrowth of that will be to be a doer of it. In fact, you're not hearing it correctly. You're not hearing it where you need to hear it if there isn't something that responds out of that. I think we'll come a little later in the book of James, not too long. We'll come to the text that talks about faith without works, and we'll talk about that more. But but I think clearly what James is saying is that the fruit of true hearing, the fruit of hearing the gospel correctly, will lead to doing. It will lead to fruit in your life. And he specifically now gives us some of that fruit. Last week, he talked about if anyone is religious, um, he will do three things. He will bridle his tongue, he will care for orphans and widows, and he will keep himself unstained from the world. And I think now as we move into chapter 2, he's just amplifying what he's just talked about. He's giving us a specific illustration of what it looks like to do just what he said there. And we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, you understand that chapter breaks were put in later. And so I, I think the chapter break in many ways does us dip, disservice in this text because I think what he's saying to us and giving illustration of is visiting orphans and widows and keeping yourself unstained from the world when he begins to talk about the issue of favoritism. And we'll look at that this morning. I told you already this morning as we were in our prayer time that we were going to come back to that particular statement in verse 1. Look at it there with me. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You see what I mean by that almost seeming like he tacked it on the end? He could have stopped. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Could have stopped. But then he says, the Lord of glory. And we want to spend some time looking at that, what it means, because I think it's key really here to what he's trying to say to these people, what he's trying to say to the church here, what James is agonizing to get across to them. And he uses the illustration of partiality, and he appeals to the sentence, the Lord of glory. 
what is that about? What, what does it mean? Well, I think already I've said to you, it goes back to, I think, what it talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 4 there, when he talks about seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. Um, the glory of Christ, the, the unbelievers are kept from seeing something, and what they're kept from seeing is the glory of Christ. And, and what the glory of Christ is, is his work for us. The apex of that, the beauty of God in Christ, is what he came to this world to show us about God and about God's heart. And all of that culminates in the cross. And so he's, he's here talking about pure religion, but he's not talking about kind of perfunctory things. We just go some, through some kind of religious activities. But he says to us, and he appeals to us, show no partiality as you hold to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What he wants our religion to, to, to be is a religion that flows out of a faith in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, in the one whom we have seen supreme beauty. And that beauty is most clearly seen in the fact that Christ sprang to us or came to us and out of him sprang downward mobility. What we see in Christ is his downward mobility to the cross. He didn't appeal to his divinity in the sense that he held to it, but he rather became, along with being fully God, fully man. We've said it many times, but but we need to stop and remember it again that one of the beauties of our God is that he didn't stay away from the brokenness. We can't answer all of the reasons for brokenness. Big picture of that, as we've said, is sin. The world is broken because of sin, but individual picture of that in your life and in others' lives, I can't, I can't answer why some people suffer more than others. I can't answer why some people have it concentrated more than others and why some seem to escape it more than others. All of that I have to leave to the mystery of God. But what I can say is that we had a God who entered fully into that brokenness. And that helps me. He didn't stay away from it. He didn't have to come. And what it means, I think, in this text, when it talks about the Lord of glory, part of what it's saying is that we had a God who entered fully into the brokenness for a people who didn't deserve that he would come to do that. What I want to do is look at some texts this morning. Just read some texts about this God, about Christ, that I hope will help us to see why he used that word, Lord of glory, when he said, show no favoritism. What he's really saying is there ought not be a hint of that among you. There's no place for that among those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's no place for that for those who really see what is the heart and the center of that glory or that beauty. Listen to some texts this morning. Listen to Isaiah 53. Listen to the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ was to come to describe his coming and describe how he would be treated in his coming. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty 
that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him Excuse me, not. It's describing Christ. It's describing his trek of downward mobility as he entered into the brokenness of our world. I think from that text we can take that there was nothing in his appearance that would have drawn us to him. It wasn't what he looked like that drew people to Jesus. It's what he was like. It was is, is the way he lived his life and the way he gave it away for others and the way he served. That's what drew them to him. There was something about him, not just in some facial appearance that drew them, but in, in a, another dimension of glory, another dimension of beauty. In as they began to see who he really was, God, and what he did, it, it changed the disciples. It changed those in those early days of the church because they saw the beauty of God. They saw the real picture of what God was like. And what this text is saying to us, if you really see that, you won't show partiality because you realize God didn't show partiality. Listen to what other texts say about this God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says in the book of Corinthians, that though he was rich, he was God. This is what the writer of Corinthians, Paul, began to see later as he came to faith in Christ. Though he was rich, though he was God, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So here in this text, he gives this illustration of of one who enters into the assembly, who is rich, and one who comes out of poverty. They enter in, and you show favoritism to them in one degree, to the rich person versus the one who comes out of poverty. And he said it ought not to be. It just can't be. If you really see the Lord of glory, if you really see what he did, that though he was rich, he became poor, that's the one you follow. There should not even be a hint of that among you. And your problem is you're not seeing the Lord of glory properly. Luke chapter 9, the writer of the gospel says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He identified much more with the man who entered in, in poverty versus the one who entered in his wealth. Philippians chapter 2, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, all of those texts, point to the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ. And the beauty is most clearly seen in the cross, that he stepped out of riches and entered into poverty for the sake of those he came 
to redeem for the sake of those he came to save. And the writer James is saying, that's who you follow. You follow this Lord of glory. How can you show favoritism? How can there be even a hint of that among you? Have this mind in your, in your mind. This mind, the mind of Christ, the mind of, of downward mobility that he had. Listen to what one author comments about this. He goes back to the text that we read during our prayer time out of Corinthians, and he amplifies it some. He does it better than I can, so I'm just going to read him. He says this. We know the glory of God in the face of Christ only because, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. And because we were a wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, he counseled us to buy gold from him that we might become rich, white garments for our nakedness and salve for our eyes that we might see. He came right down to where we were, taking our nature upon him, taking our sin upon him, taking out curse upon him, our curse upon him, and bringing to our blinded minds the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In a word, it was in Christ that God the Father shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then he goes on to say this, to depart from this definition of what constitutes true glory is first to set ourselves up as judges, which this text talks about. And in passing judgment to allow ourselves to be governed by wrong reasoning, we have in fact committed a double fault. We have misunderstood our status as if it were our position to set in judgment on others and we have trusted our own judgment as if by ourselves we could make a true and accurate assessment. You see, that's kind of what they were doing here in this particular text. They were making an assessment, weren't they? They were making an assessment as these two individuals entered into their assembly, whatever assembly that was, and many believe it was a specific example that James may have been referencing. But as those two people entered into their assembly, they were making assessments as to the worthiness of those people. And they were making the decision that the one who entered in rich was more worthy than the one who entered in poor. And the Bible says, the text here in James says, it's because of the evilness of their hearts. And in essence, because they aren't seeing the glory of Christ properly. They aren't understanding. goes on to write, On the contrary, James teaches by a clear implication that in both status and judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the glory, must reign supreme. As to how we accept others, we must ask, how would he accept them? As to how we appraise others, we must ask how he would appraise them. And as how we act toward others, we must ask how would he act toward them. Our values, priorities, and activities must ever be governed by a definition of true glory displayed in the person, contact, and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it comes and it happens by seeing. We must Ask how he would accept them, how would he appraise them, how would he act toward them in light of how he acted toward us. Because in every sense, 
We were the poor person who entered in. We were, all of us. He's saying all of you who are believers today were in the second category of the one who entered in. The poor. The one who had nothing to offer him. And yet he came to you. And yet he, while we were yet sinners, died for us. You see what he's appealing to? He's appealing to our Lord. He's appealing to what he did for them. How can they turn now and make assessments of others based on other criteria? It must be based on that criteria of how he treated us, how Christ treated us when we were poor and wretched and miserable. And we didn't smell very good. And he welcomed us. He welcomed us. Our values, our priorities, and activities must ever be governed by the definition of true glory. And what is the definition of true glory, true beauty? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I think he comes back and says, the Lord of glory. He appeals to that. And he says, your faith is in that Lord, is in that glory. In essence, what he says, do what Jesus would do. Do what Jesus did for you. Do what Jesus did for you. How can we do any less? And we only do less when we forget. When we forget what he's done, or we don't comprehend what he's done, or we don't fully see what he's done for us. That we somehow think that we entered in and somehow merited what he did. The scripture says very plainly we didn't. And then he goes on in this text. He goes on to say other things. He goes on, I think, and peels back to what we had last week in our text. Because we see very clearly that the heart of Jesus, the heart of Jesus went out to the poor. It went out to the least of these. As you read the Bible from the Old Testament into the New Testament, particularly when you see the life of Jesus, he reached out to the poor. He reached out to the least of these literally reached out to the least of these. Not just in a spiritual sense, but in, in a literal sense of those that he came. In, in uh, verse 5, look what it says of the text this morning. There, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Here's a reference to poor. It's not not just poor in spirit. We understand that blessed are the poor in spirit who see their spiritual need. But there was a sense in which Jesus, I think, came to the poor. And the majority of those who, in those early days of the church, were in his kingdom were people who came out of those ranks. The majority came out of those ranks. Not Not the minority. We know that because of the book of Corinthians again. Listen to what it says this. He's speaking to the Corinthian church. Paul writes this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Clearly, all through Scripture, we see that Jesus' heart was toward the poor. Deuteronomy, the book in the Old Testament, we see it back there. It says, to the Lord your God, um, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow. Book of Luke, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's a reference right out of the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. To the poor. Jesus came to reach out to the poor. So how can when they enter into the sanctuary, how can you show favoritism? It was appalling, I think, to James. And it, it, it was a reasoning that had to do with worldly wisdom. As you look back in the text from last week, it said this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The idea of the least of these, which we've talked about. But then it goes on, to keep oneself unstained from the world. What, what does it mean to stay unstained from the world? Last week we referenced it. Certainly it means that we should, we should move toward purity of life in that sense. And all kinds of things could be defined as that. But it's more than that. It's worldly thinking. That we should keep ourselves unstained from the thinking of the world. From the mindset of the world. Jesus didn't operate by the drummer of the world. He didn't operate with worldly mindset. Jesus didn't let the lure of power control him. And, and we have a tendency sometimes to do that, don't we? It's easy for us because of our hearts, because of our evil hearts, to sometimes let wealth and position and education and all those things have a place that it ought not to have. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus here is appealing to not have a worldly mindset. Show no favoritism. He appeals to the glory of God. He appeals to the glory of Christ. That he didn't have that. He didn't go there. He didn't do that. He didn't let the lure of that affect him and distort his thinking. It's easy for that to happen in our lives, isn't it? It's easy for us to pass judgments and to make judgments with the wrong criteria. Jesus would say it's because of the evilness of our heart. So again, the remedy for that is to go back to Christ, to go back and have his mind, have this mind among us that was in Christ Jesus, a mind that came to people who didn't deserve it and extended grace and extended mercy. People who had no no reason within themselves for God to be moved to do that, except God chose to do that. And in many cases, it says God chose to go to the poor. Why? Why, why is that 
the mentality that Jesus had. Now, certainly that doesn't exclude the rich, um, Abraham, the Old Testament. There were people who had resources. But, but why, why does it so emphasize that in these texts? I think, again, because of the worldliness of it, because the way the world operates is it is enamored and influenced and moved by the wrong kinds of things. Jesus wasn't. Jesus went to the least of these. There's, there's something about Jesus that, that moved him to the least of these, to the people who, who had little. Listen to an illustration of that in the book of Mark, chapter 12. We find Jesus watching people take their money and put it into the treasury. He's he's sitting back observing as these people bring their offerings. Matthew tells the story. It says he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. It says many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he calls his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of the abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live live on. Everything. Jesus operated differently. And part of the glory, part of the beauty, in fact, the heart of the beauty is that. And to understand that he did that for us. Whether you're Wealthy or not here this morning, if you've come to see the glory of Christ, if you put your hope in him, if he has brought you from death to life, he has extended his grace and mercy to you today. He has shown his favor to you. Can you do any less to others? Can you do any less to others? There's just no place, no place in the church, no place in God's economy for worldly kinds of mindsets. He wants us to shun them. He wants us to run from them. The, the danger of wealth is, is enormous. In fact, in this series, we talked about the, the, the dangers of wealth. It, it causes a self-sufficiency. It causes us the ability to kind of do our own thing in an independent kind of spirit that certainly the grace of God can overcome and does overcome. But it's harder. It's harder. And, and there's a battle that goes on. I don't think Jesus is against rich people. But there's a self-sufficiency in there that is dangerous. And, and the, the, the thing I think it's talking about in this text is don't let the wrong things impress you. Don't let the wrong things impress you. And in fact, if you do, you will get burned by them. The text really says that. It goes on in, in this particular account in verse 5. It says, listen, those who are poor in the world... Uh, Listen, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppose you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
If, if we buy into worldly wisdom, it will come back to burn us. It will come back to bite us and hurt us in ways we, we will be regretful of. The church needs to be careful. The church needs to be careful to not do what it does in worldly kinds of ways, in worldly kinds of mindsets, in the ways that the world operates not allowing the lure of things to, to draw them in because it will come back. It will come back. In fact, I think today in many ways the church in, has, has allowed that to happen in our Western society. We've, we've, we've rested on the wrong kinds of things at times. And it's texts like this that bring us back to reality. It's texts like this that remind us that we are to be people who go to the least of these, that we go to people who have nothing to offer us necessarily, but we take the gospel of grace to them and we share the good news. We share the good news with all, but don't put our hopes in the wrong places. Don't put our hope in worldly kinds of ways to do things. But the truth of the matter is we all wrestle with that. We all struggle with that. You'd have to admit here today that there are times when you let things impress you that ought not to impress you. You let things influence you that ought not to influence you, that our hearts have a tendency to be drawn to those kinds of things, drawn to power. And what's the remedy of that? What's the answer to that? What do we do in the midst of that? James is coming to that. We're going to jump over there this morning to it. If you want to turn to chapter 4, we'll spend more time here later. But he's, he's warning the church, don't show favoritism. Don't give the best seat to the rich versus the poor. Don't shun one over the other. Don't operate by the system of the world. But he knows at times we will. He knows at times our hearts will go places they shouldn't go. And here's what he says. In verse 5 of chapter 4, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it? Of no purpose, as the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But then it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, repent. Repent. He's writing these same words to, to the ones he wrote the other words to. He's writing it to people who he knows at times we'll be tempted to do it the wrong way. We'll be tempted to be lured by things that shouldn't lure them. Be tempted to be tantalized by things that shouldn't tantalize them. And his answer is to say, don't do that. Understand to be a friend of the world will come back to bite you. It will come back to get you. If you operate by those methods, disaster is waiting. So repent. Come against your heart. Acknowledge the fact that at times you are there. At times you are guilty. At times you pass judgment on people that you shouldn't pass. Humble yourselves before God. Resist that temptation to operate by worldly mindsets. 
and humble yourself before God. Scripture says he will exalt you and he will draw near to you as you draw near to him. God help us as a church. God help us to be a people who go to the least of these, who welcome the least of these because we know we were there. The the basis, the grounding of why we do it is because that's who we are before God. All of us who are in the kingdom today were the second person, were the, the poor person who entered in. The one that had no reason in an earthly sense for people to go to him, nothing drew them to him. In fact, what, what he was repulsed the people. There was maybe a, a, a body odor, maybe whatever it was, something re- caused them to be drawn to one and repulsed by the other. But the gospel tells us that God, even though we were repulsive to him, the glory of God, the beauty of God, even though we were repulsive to him, he went to us. He went to us. Should we do any less? That's the heart of God. God, help us to be that kind of people. God, forgive us. God, forgive us for being tantalized and lured by the wrong kinds of things. We're going to sing together a song that we've already sang, beginning song this morning. And it talks about God giving us the grace to live a life that's reflective of who he is and the way we ought to be. As they come this morning, I pray it's a prayer for us and that you will look at your own life even this week. Have you measured up people in the wrong ways? Have you used the wrong measuring stick? Have you forgotten how God measured you up and how wanting you were and yet he came to you? God, help us to see more of the glory of Christ. Let's stand. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Hold it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. Did I know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joy. Thank you.
we sang this morning, that you would glorify your name through us. If we're serious about that, it would mean that people would see in us a reflection of what they saw in you. One who showed no partiality. And in fact, one who went to those who in many ways were repulsive. That you stepped into their lives, Father. Didn't just ignore them, but stepped into the repulsiveness. God, help us. Help us to be that. Help us to reflect that image in our lives. Forgive us, Father, for the times we measure things up and measure people up and make wrong judgments. And Oh, God, our hearts are so fickle. We get enamored by all kinds of things that are wrong. Help us to catch ourselves, Lord. Help us to know that and, and just to instinctively know that we're wrong. Help us to catch ourselves quickly in that wrongness and to run from it. Lord, I pray that you will help us as a church collectively to reflect the glory of God and how we treat people, how we work with people. In Jesus' name.